0: All right, our passage for today comes from the book of Romans, Romans chapter 14, verses 1 through 12. I invite you to turn there with me if you have your Bibles, or you can uh, look there on your mobile device if you prefer to use that. And as always, the passage will be shown on the screen up here. Romans chapter 14, verses 1 to 12. And they will stand, for the Lord is able to make them stand. One person considers one day more sacred than another. Another considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. Whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. Whoever eats meat does so to the Lord, for they give thanks to God. Whoever abstains does so to the Lord and give thanks to God. For none of us lives for ourselves alone, and none of us dies for ourselves alone. If we live, we live for the Lord, and if we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we eat, I'm sorry, whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. For this very reason Christ died and returned to life, so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. You then, why do you judge your brother or sister, or why do you treat them with contempt? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat, as it is written, As surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me, every tongue will acknowledge God. So then, each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. The title of today's sermon, as you can see, is Without Quarreling Over Disputable Matters without quarreling over disputable matters. I lifted that phrase right out of the end of verse 1 from our scripture reading. And I chose this passage mainly in light of the recent decision by the Elder Board to modify our COVID safety measures and make masks still strongly recommended but no longer required, as Pastor Noah mentioned just now during the announcements. I think many of us would agree that This issue of whether or not to wear a mask has been very much a disputable issue, a disputable matter. We've seen this, most notably, at school board meetings over the past two years here in Naperville and really all over the country. This has sadly also been a disputable matter within the church, capital C, church. Pastors and elder boards and other church governing bodies across our country have struggled over whether or not they should require masks and for what reasons. I recently came across an article that was published last October in the Atlantic magazine with the title, My Church Doesn't Know What to Do Anymore. How's that for honesty? And you can just sense the author's frustration from the opening paragraph. She writes, after fielding back-to-back complaints about masks in church, one regarding a fellow parishioner who had shirked a mask, during a recent service, and the other, wondering whether our congregation had changed its policy from strongly recommended to required because everyone, quote unquote, was wearing them. I realized something surprising. Leading a church is harder now in 2021 than it was in 2020, during the worst of the coronavirus pandemic. Boy, well, I don't doubt that's the case. I think our situation here at RCC has, in many ways, been much easier. For one thing, we meet at a public school, so we've had to follow the school district's policies about masking and social distancing. But we've also been consulting regularly with our team of healthcare workers who have been advising us throughout the pandemic. And we've generally deferred to the guidelines from the CDC, which were updated just over a week ago, as many of us are aware. Now, I know, I know that not everyone here watching or not everyone uh, who is uh, here uh, in this room right now, not everyone is entirely comfortable with our recent decision to update our policy on masking. For what it's worth, when we surveyed our members about this issue, a majority of the 22 people who responded were in favor of making masks strongly recommended but no longer required. But it wasn't an overwhelming majority. It was more like 60-40. So what I hope to do this morning is to offer some principles from our passage we read about how we can get along with fellow Christians who may hold a different position on a disputable matter like masking. Now, how can we know whether a particular issue falls under this category of disputable matters? Well, it's not always clear. And admittedly, that's what makes this so hard. Now, there are some issues that clearly were not open for discussion as far as the Apostle Paul was concerned. The gospel, for example, was a non-negotiable. We see this in the warning he gives in the first chapter of Galatians, where he writes, But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. Non negotiable. Another non negotiable was imposing church discipline for behavior that was clearly sin. We see this in the opening verses of 1 Corinthians 5. There, Paul is concerned about a so called brother who is living in defiant and unrepented sin. And so he makes a plea in verse 2 for the church's leadership to put this man, and I quote, out of your fellowship. So yes, there are certain issues which are not open for debate. We have to be willing in those cases to hold our ground because the integrity of the gospel or the peace and purity of the church are at stake. But where it gets tricky is when one group of believers think that an issue is a disputable matter while another group doesn't. And the second group is convinced that they're right and their fellow Christians, though well intended, are wrong. Theologians who study this passage have often defined disputable matters as practices that God neither commands nor prohibits in His Word. Practices that God neither commands nor prohibits in His Word. They even use a fancy word for this called adiaphora. Practices that God neither commands nor prohibits in His Word. Now, I'm going to be operating under the admittedly huge assumption that masks are among the disputable matters. I don't see any explicit command or prohibition in the Scripture about masking. Or if I put it another way, there are sincere Christians who hold different views, even as we all still agree that the Bible is God's inspired and inerrant and authoritative word, and that Jesus is the Son of God who became a truly human person without suffering any loss to His divine nature, that He lived a perfect life and died on the cross to atone for the sins of all who would believe in Him alone, and He was raised on the third day back to life, and that a sinner can be saved only by God's grace through faith alone in Christ alone. We can agree on all those major, non-negotiable doctrines while still landing in different places on this disputable matter of masking. So the question for us today is how can believers get along when they disagree about issues that aren't necessarily central to the faith? How can believers get along when they disagree about issues that aren't necessarily central to the faith? That's the question we're going to try to answer this morning. If we look at our passage in verse 1, it opens with a command from the Apostle Paul for Christians in Rome to accept the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. Now, since this instruction is about accepting the weak, I think we can assume that Paul is speaking mainly to those who call themselves strong. And indeed, Paul does mention this group later on in our passage. Perhaps some of us are already asking at this point, well, who exactly are these folks in the church whom Paul describes as weak? And for that matter, who are the strong ones? Well, Many scholars believe that the weak here are primarily Christians who were born and raised as religious and cultural Jews, and then they came to faith later on in life. Christianity, many of us know, first began as a new movement that was birthed out of Judaism. Jesus himself was Jewish, so were his original disciples, who eventually became the first leaders of the church at Jerusalem, so was the Apostle Paul. And many of the new churches that were planted as Christianity started to move away from Judea and Samaria to the Roman Empire had members who were culturally Jewish. And these folks had a genuine faith in Jesus. They were true believers. But they also still believed that they needed to follow certain Old Testament laws about the Sabbath day, or about observing special festivals, or about what they could or could not eat. We find many of these food laws in books like Leviticus, and some Jews today still follow these laws. Many of us have at least heard of the kosher diet, where they eat only certain foods and cook their foods even in a certain way and avoid certain foods like pork? As we hear all this, we might be tempted to come down a bit harsh on these Jewish Christians. I mean, what is the big deal here, we might wonder? Don't they know that Jesus came to basically end, to put an end to many of these ritual and ceremonial laws from the Old Testament? That's really the main lesson in the book of Hebrews, right? So what's the big deal? Why are they still trying to observe these Ritual and cultural laws in the Old Testament. Well, that's understandable, but let's think about it in a different way. If you've been eating or avoiding certain foods since your childhood days, you could probably imagine it's not easy to just all of a sudden abandon those beliefs or abandon those customs even after you convert to a new religion. Well, if the weak here were mainly Jewish Christians, as many scholars have argued, then the strong were predominantly Gentile Christians in the church. And unlike their Jewish brothers and sisters, these Gentile believers did not believe that they had to follow the rituals or requirements of the Old Testament law. Now, one important detail I want to draw attention to here is that Paul himself identified with the strong. We see hints of this later on in our chapter. In verse 14, for example, he says, I am convinced, being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus, that nothing is unclean in itself. He's talking about food here. He's basically saying that Jesus has indeed set all believers free from having to follow those Old Testament food laws. And remember, Paul was Jewish. We might even label him as a liberated Jew. And yet he knew Because of what Christ has accomplished, there were no longer any foods that he should view as unclean. And so in a way, Paul is basically saying these strong believers in Rome are correct. They're right. There's no longer any obligation to follow the Old Testament laws about food or special days or whatnot. And perhaps this is also the reason why he describes them as the stronger group. Now, I found it interesting to see that Paul didn't refer to the Jewish Christians here not just as the weak, but those whose faith is weak. And that may seem harsh, but I don't think Paul is necessarily accusing them of having a weak faith or an inadequate faith. Again, these Jewish Christians genuinely trusted in Jesus. They were saved. It just seems they hadn't yet fully processed or internalized the implications of their new faith in Christ. They hadn't yet fully processed the reality that the gospel has set them free from those Old Testament ritual laws. And I think it's possible, even likely, that when Paul describes these Jewish Christians as those whose faith is weak, that's kind of his subtle way of telling them that he hopes that they will grow in their understanding of the gospel. This is a letter that would have been read out loud to the entire church in the presence of both Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. So they would have heard this, these Jewish Christians. Perhaps they're kind of getting Paul's underlying message here. Hear what I'm saying. I want you to grow in your faith. I want you to grow in your understanding of the gospel. My desire for you is that you will someday become strong. But on the other hand, Paul also understands an important reality about ministry, and that is We often need to meet people where they're at. We have to be willing to show grace. We have to be willing to be patient and understanding. In short, we need to be willing to accept them. That's precisely what Paul commands to his fellow stronger believers in verse 1. Yes, they were right on this issue, But rather than looking down on their weaker brothers and sisters in Christ, rather than trying to prove that they're wrong, Paul says that they're to accept them. By the way, accept here doesn't mean tolerate. Accept doesn't just mean put up with. The word in the original language carries this idea of warmly welcoming that person into your fellowship, and warmly welcoming that person into your heart. In other words, for Paul, there's something even more important than being right on a disputable matter, and that is the unity of the church. The unity of the church is a more urgent priority than who's right or who's wrong on a disputable matter. For the rest of our time today, I'd like to offer three reasons from our passage why we should accept or welcome someone, even if we might disagree with them on a disputable matter. The first is that God has accepted both the strong and the weak. I put those in quotes here because I'm just using the terms that Paul uses in our passage. God has accepted both the strong and the weak. Let's look at verses 2 and 3. In verse 2, Paul says, One person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. The one who eats any, everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not, and the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does, for God has accepted them. Now, Again, it seems pretty clear that the weak in the Roman church are the Jewish Christians. They were still concerned about following certain Old Testament food laws, So they avoided meats and ate only vegetables, as the end of verse 2 says. They may not have been sure if the meat had been sacrificed to an idol, or perhaps the meat hadn't been properly cooked or prepared according to Old Testament kosher principles. I think it's interesting how Paul gives different warnings to these different groups. In verse 3, he tells the Gentiles who eat everything that they must not treat... Their weaker Jewish Christians with contempt. In other translations use the word despise there instead of treat with contempt. They must not despise their weaker Jewish Christians. A New Testament scholar named Doug Moo, who teaches over here in Wheaton, offers a helpful explanation. He says, despise connotes a disdainful, condescending judgment, an attitude that we can well imagine among the strong who prided themselves on their enlightened Liberal perspective taking toward those whom they considered to be foolishly hung up on the trivia of a bygone era, one additional detail about these strong Gentile Christians is that they were very likely the majority group in the church, and in many other churches in Europe and Asia Minors, Christianity started growing. They were the majority group, and so it would have been easy for this majority group to despise or to treat with contempt the Jewish Christians in their churches who were the minority group. And Paul's warning them not to do this. But then he gives a different warning, or at least different wording, to the weaker Jewish Christians in the church. In verse 3, he tells them not to judge their Gentile brothers and sisters who eat certain foods that they would consider unclean. Doug Moo has some helpful thoughts here, too. He says the weak, Paul suggests, consider themselves to be The righteous remnant, who alone upheld true standards of piety and righteousness, and who were standing in judgment over those who fell beneath these standards. So different warnings to each group. The stronger Gentile Christians shouldn't despise or treat with contempt their Jewish brothers and sisters in the faith, and the weaker Jewish Christians shouldn't judge their Gentile brothers and sisters. Perhaps these are just different ways of giving the same message, though. Basically, Paul's saying, Stop criticizing each other. Why? Well, the end of verse 3 tells us why. Because God has accepted them. Both groups are to welcome or accept one another, even though they may disagree on this disputable matter about food because God has accepted both the strong and the weak. John Stott, a pastor and theologian, offers a good suggestion for us here. He just says, how dare we reject a person whom God has accepted? Indeed, the best way to determine what our attitude to other people should be is to determine what God's attitude to them is. This principle, he says, is better even than the golden rule. It is safe to treat others as we would like them to treat us, but it is safer still to treat them as God does. Why should we accept someone even though we may disagree with them on a disputable matter? Well, because God has accepted them. That's our first lesson this morning. Secondly, we should accept someone even though we may disagree with them on a disputable matter because Jesus is the Lord over both the strong and the weak. Jesus is the Lord over both the strong and the weak. Let's look at verse 4. In verse 4, Paul writes, Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master's servants stand or fall, and they will stand, for the Lord is able to make them stand. Now, throughout this passage, and even as we keep reading, even beyond our passage in Romans 14 and 15, Paul is addressing both the strong and the weak in the church in Rome. But in this particular verse, in verse 4, he seems to be focusing especially on the weak. He seems to be focusing especially on the Jewish Christians in the Roman church. For one thing, he uses the word judge again. That's the same word he used when he warned them in verse 3. Perhaps these Jewish Christians were thinking that their Gentile sisters and brothers were actually the weaker, less mature ones. Perhaps they believed that their refusal to follow the Old Testament food laws was putting them in spiritual danger. Well, if that was their line of thinking, Paul's answer is basically, don't worry about them. Don't worry about your Gentile brothers and sisters. God's approval doesn't depend on whether or not they avoid certain foods. He's able to make them stand, as the end of verse 4 says. Don't worry about them. God's got them. Let's keep reading. We pick up in verse 5. One person considers one day more sacred than another. Another considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. Whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. Whoever eats meat does so to the Lord, for they give thanks to God. And whoever abstains... Does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. You know, Paul is doing something here that neither the weak nor the strong were apparently willing to do for each other. Paul is assuming the best for each group. He's assuming that both the weak and the strong are acting out of good motives. He's assuming that both. The Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians have a sincere desire to honor their Lord. in the best way that they know how is they are each convinced in their own mind, as he puts it at the end of verse 5. We can only wonder how different things might be if each side on a disputable issue would be willing to follow our apostles' example and assume the best for each other. How much better would things be if believers from both sides were willing to give each other the benefit of the doubt? More specifically, how much better would it be if those who insist on wearing masks assumed the best for the other group instead of thinking that they're selfish for not wearing one? How much better would it be for those who insist on going mask-free gave the other group the benefit of the doubt instead of thinking that they're wearing masks because they're being paranoid? continue. Verse 7. For none of us lives for ourselves alone and none of us dies for ourselves alone. If we live, we live for the Lord. and If we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. Yes, both groups on this disputable issue, this disputable matter still live for the same Lord. And the same Lord will determine exactly when and how we will die regardless of Where we stand on a disputable matter, we will all still die for the same Lord. And we all still belong to the same Lord, as he says at the end of verse 8. Paul's point here is simply that the realities that unite us are so much more important than any disputable matters that divide us. In other words, we are still sisters and brothers who serve and follow and honor the same Lord. Why? Well, because Jesus died and rose again for all of us. That's why. For this very reason, Christ died and returned to life, so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. Christians who believed in him and then eventually passed away and those who are still alive. He is the Lord of all of us. This is why we should accept someone even though we disagree on a disputable matter. It's because Jesus is our Lord. He is the Lord over all of us. That's our second lesson this morning. Wherever we might stand on a certain disputable matter, we are ultimately accountable only one person each of us will stand before one Lord when everything is said and done and when that day comes only his opinion will matter this takes us to our third and final lesson we should accept one another even if we may disagree on a disputable matter because God alone will judge both the strong and the weak God alone will judge both the strong and the weak let's look at verse 10 Verse 10, he writes, You then, why do you judge your brother or sister? Or why do you treat them with contempt? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. It is written, As surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me, every tongue will acknowledge God. Now Paul is coming a little bit strong here, coming across a little bit strong, but I think that's intentional. He wants to make sure that nobody among the weak or the strong misses his point. This point is, if we find ourselves despising or judging a fellow brother or sister in Christ, what we're really doing is we are usurping a role that belongs only to God. He alone has the right to judge his people. Now, he has made certain matters very clear through his word. Again, there are certain issues that are not up for debate. Hey, the gospel is not up for debate. We must stand our ground and refute any teachings or claims that compromise the good news of salvation through faith alone in Christ alone. Unrepented sin that poisons or fractures the fellowship is also not up for debate. Leaders in those cases must discipline offenders for their own good and for the good of the church. But there are some matters where the Bible is silent. God neither commands nor prohibits it. And even if certain commands in Scripture are clear, different Christians may find different ways to apply those commands. For example, if we read the chapter before our passage this morning, we find the clear commandment to love our neighbors as ourselves, Romans 13, 9. Love our neighbors as ourselves. And some Christians might believe that wearing a mask is the best way to apply that command. But others might believe that wearing a mask hinders their ability to obey the command of Psalm 47 and sing praises to our God, as we heard in our call to worship this morning. So, again, even if certain commandments are clear, that's not always the case with their specific application. And when it comes to a disputable matter like masking, I want to just echo the Apostle Paul here from a passage and say, Let each of us be convinced. In our own minds. But I also want to quote the Apostle Paul from passage and say, let's also refrain from despising or judging one another. Only God has that right. And our passage reminds us that we will each have to stand before him someday. And we will each have to give an account for not only the convictions we held, but also the way we treated other believers who landed in a different place. Now, as I finish up, let me address a question that some of us may be asking. Maybe you were asking it during the sermon. When it comes to this disputable matter of face masks, who's the stronger believer? Is it those who are convinced that masking isn't necessary? Are they the stronger ones, or is it the opposite? Is it those who are convinced that masks are necessary? That's really the question, isn't it? Well, this is going to sound like a huge cop-out, but I'm not going to give a direct answer. I think that would just land me in a whole heap of trouble, and I'm no fool. But more seriously... I don't think our passage actually requires us to find that kind of one-to-one correspondence between the situation in the first century church in Rome and our situation today. So I would instead like to offer this suggestion. Whatever view you hold regarding this matter, whether your mask should be on all the time or mask should be optional or no masks at all, wherever you land on this matter, Just assume you're the stronger group. You're the stronger group. Just assume that. So now that we've clarified that, let's go one step further. Since you're the stronger group, you can also safely assume that you are more informed, more enlightened than folks from the other weaker group. In other words, you know that you're right. You're right, they're wrong. You've done your research, you've done your own critical thinking on this matter, you've asked the hard questions, and now you are convinced in your own mind. You know you're right, and the other group is wrong. Now since we've clarified that, can I at least ask you to perhaps consider these words of caution from Doug Moo, the scholar I cited earlier. Those who consider themselves enlightened are always tempted to treat with condescension and even scorn those who are less enlightened. Paul warns the strong not to succumb to this tendency. Paul's theological justification for this warning to both weak and strong is a central affirmation that Christ is Lord. Christians are slaves who owe absolute allegiance to their master and only their master, not the fellow slaves. No fellow believer, apart from Christ's own revelation and teaching the gospel, has the right to call us to account. You know, this advice is very similar to what we read in the 20th chapter of the Westminster Confession of Faith, where it says, God alone is Lord of the conscience and has left it free from the doctrines and commandments of men which are in anything contrary to his word or which in matters of faith or worship are in addition to it. In other words, believers should not be trying to bind the consciences of other believers on matters about which the Bible offers no explicit commandment or prohibition. Our conscience is free from the obligation to follow any doctrines or commandments in matters of faith or worship that are in addition to the Word of God. There's only one Lord of each individual believer's conscience and that is God Himself. And so my dear brothers and sisters in Christ, Let us not have any quarreling over disputable matters. Instead, let's accept, even welcome, those with whom we disagree because God has accepted both the strong and the weak. Let's welcome those with whom we disagree because Jesus is the Lord over both the strong and the weak. Let's welcome those with whom we disagree because, in the end, God alone will judge both the strong on some certain disputable matters, there is an even more urgent priority than knowing that you're right. That is the unity of the church. May the Lord in his grace help us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for time in your word this morning. Uh, Lord, we are profoundly aware, even as our sister prayed earlier, about the challenge that Your church, capital C, and even our church, RCC, has endured during this past two years. And Lord, we ask that by your grace, you would bring healing and renewal, a deeper sense of unity, and by your grace, we also pray that you'd help us to live out the teaching of this passage. That on certain disputable matters, we should be convinced in our own mind, we should do our research, we should pray, we should think critically. But Lord, we must also treat those fellow sisters and brothers in Christ in a welcoming way, even though we may land in different places would you help us lord we acknowledge we can't do this on our own so we look to you ask for your grace your empowerment through your holy spirit we pray this in jesus name amen